Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. And it is the Friday Eve of a big week here in the great state of Mississippi. With uh, cruising the coast, that's where we were yesterday on the beautiful Mississippi Gulf Coast, looking at all them classic vehicles, something to behold, a great event. And the Sanderson Farms, the championship right down the road here in central Mississippi, underway. I believe the sports talk team is there today. Oh, yeah. And then middays. was out there bright and early. (laughs) I saw that. Middays uh, will be on hand. At the Country Club of Jackson, uh, broadcasting live tomorrow. A little cloudy today, a little front moving through. Cooling it off, perhaps a little sprinkle here and there, right? And you got to stay fair. <laughs> Forgot about that. How can I forget? Because <laughs> driving by it there, of course, en route south, you can't help but miss it there. Uh, but see it, I should say. I mean, it's um, coming up nicely, I would say. So October's just a busy time. College football approaching the the baseball World Series coming up. So maybe the, arguably the best time of year for sports, in my view, when you kind of have that overlap going on there. NFL, college football. I know, maybe not so much for the soccer fans, right? I was, fans gonna, I was just going to say people might argue that March is also in contention. Sure, I would agree. Because you have the start of baseball seasons with spring training and college ball. You've got basketball with March Madness. That's true. It's big time. But uh, certainly, a lot to keep us entertained, that is for sure. On the program today, George Dale, board member of the Mississippi Public Employees Retirement System. That'd be PERS. That's at 11.05. That should be an interesting discussion. Uh, from a member of the PERS board to see uh, what their thoughts are about the current situation at PERS and some of the recent actions the board has taken and what they may be thinking about moving forward. And then it's Joel and Natasha from America's Roundtable Radio Program, also co-founder of International Leaders Summit. They're coming on at 12.20 on middays to... Talk about the crazy stuff going on up in D.C. Give us an update on the Ukraine conflict. Always appreciate their perspective, Rhino. They're incredibly 
well-versed in all things from the region, having some uh, some connection there, certainly Natasha. So I, I look forward to that. And it's not a day goes by, right, without Americans on uh, on both sides of the argument discussing funding for Ukraine. Now, I, I'm my biggest concern about funding for Ukraine is do we really know where it's all going? That's number one. Is there a, a proper accounting for our money? That's number one. Number two that concerns me is what's the goal here? I kind of feel like it's a Vietnam sort of deal. What's the ultimate goal? What do we get out of this? What is our return? I think I'd be more on board, and I think Americans would, on this investment we're making, this money we're sending, the assets we're sending uh, to Ukraine, if we understood what's in it for us. What's the return on that investment? That's, I think, a reasonable request. Have you seen anybody say that other than, well, if we don't do this, Russia's going to blow the world up? That's about all you hear. Oh, yeah. Nikki Haley, that's been her. I mean, she just... How could you possibly side with tyrants like Putin? Uh, that was basically... Is the rhetoric you get when you even raise the question of, wait, how much have we said? Exactly right. And, you know, she got into a bit of a uh, a, a verbal <laughs> debate on the stage there. It was really bickering is what it was. I'm being nice when I refer to it as a debate with Vivek Ramaswamy, who says, quit spending money over there. And then she said, well, every time I hear you talk, I feel dumber. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And she, I think she tries to really portray him as just not understanding all the dynamics, right, and all the nuances and all the issues at stake uh, vis-a-vis the conflict. And, you know, just a neophyte in that area and, you know, and trying to promote herself as having a lot of experience, which she does. She served as ambassador to the U.N., and so she does. But that doesn't mean she's right, necessarily, on the issues there. But uh, it's a big one. Now, on the other hand, I just want to point this out. Just, again, math does matter. Math matters. All math matters. That's right. Not just math, but all math, right? Well, I thought that was racist if you said all. (laughs) It's only the math that says 2 plus 2 equal 5. That's what matters. The real 2 plus 2 equal 4, well, that don't matter. That'd be racist. (laughs) That's what we're told in so many circles. Total insanity, by the way. Well, here's the deal. So uh, all accounts indicate that total aid to Ukraine's about $100 billion, maybe 110, I think. Once the rest of it that's been approved gets deployed, I'm certainly not saying that that's nothing. $110 billion is a lot. That's over more than a year, right? That's been going on since we started sending money. That's that's more than 12 months over a year. I'm not saying that's nothing. I just once again want to point out the math here. We just closed the fiscal year. And we rang up, as expected, a $2 trillion deficit. The forecast is to produce a $2.2 to $2.3 trillion deficit for fiscal year 2024, which will conclude at the end of September of 2024. Again, 
the $100 billion, which, by the way, is essentially over two years, pretty close to approaching the two-year mark since we started supplying aid, furnishing aid. Well, if, if let's say you take a year and two-thirds of spending, just put it at around $10 trillion. We're talking about less than 1%. Now, again, I'm not minimizing or downplaying that amount. But what I feel like the way it's the way it's so focused on and so heavily discussed is that it's like there's this perception out there, misconception, hey, if we just quit spending money to Ukraine, we could balance the budget. No, after you do that, you gotta find another two point two trillion. Now that's serious money, two point two trillion by orders of magnitude. I feel like right the patient is presenting a heart attack and has got minutes to live without without action. And we're focused on a hangnail. Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying that triage and prioritization is important. Why don't we focus as much on the $2 trillion excess as we do on that $100 billion? It's like you're operating your household... And, it's, and you say, well, instead of maybe, I don't know, downside Instead of name brand Oreos, we're getting store-bought Oreos. <laughs> yeah. Store brand. <laughs> so what that save you? Like 20 cents, maybe? Right. You got a $3,000 mortgage in the meantime. That's what I feel like this argument's about. And, and again, it's, the point is I think it's more symbolic. It feels more symbolic in nature than it does substantive, because math does matter. If you ran a business that way, and you said, you know what, uh, we could cut out the free water, but okay, free water, but you're losing a million bucks a month. That costs about twenty. You've seen crap like that. Like, no, that ain't going to do it. So when do we ever get serious about? Going bold, going big, being transformative. And the, and the grievance I have with the eight dissenters that ousted McCarthy, I don't care who's Speaker of the House. I think we focus too much on the person and not enough on the problems. What is the plan, Matt Gates? By the way, you have seen this, Rhino? Gates, Nancy Mace, two of the eight, they're monetizing the hell out of this deal. Oh, yeah. You get 14 emails raising money. And the same people that support them because they say that McCarthy is all locked up with the lobbyists and the donors is exactly what these people are doing. They got their hand out. Look what I did. I voted McCarthy out. Give me money. Give me money. McCarthy brokered a bipartisan bill that could keep the government from shutting down. Let's kick him out and... Vote bipartisan with all the Democrats. Unbelievable. I just can't wrap my head around that logic. And it would have deployed money, assets, resources right now to the border had they passed that bill because there was significant funding in there. Instead, where did they send them? Home. It's crazy. Home. We're coming right back with a lot more on Middays in the Element Well studio. And we got some tickets to give away before we get out of here today. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
studio it's middays i continue to be concerned about the financial environment the economic environment in this country the dow down 152 today it just seems like every day every day now crude is down as well and that's because reports indicate demand finally started to taper off i think that re- the result Unexpectedly, honestly, that the result of higher prices, I still think we got a good chance of seeing oil shoot up to 110 bucks a barrel, and that ain't going to be good. Still think we're headed that way because the Saudis and the Russians are bound and determined uh, to control and, and regulate production so as to achieve that price point. I really do think that's what's going on here. And so I'm concerned about that. But investors, by the way, pushed up the 30-year bond. This may actually be, believe it or not, a little bit of good news. 30-year bond to over 5%. Now, why is that important? Because when investors um, start investing in long-term bonds as opposed to short-term Well, that means that they feel like inflation short-lived. In other words, you're willing to park your money for a longer period of time because you have some degree of confidence in price stability for an extended period of time. What you see when when the lines are crossed, where you get higher returns on short-term than you do long-term, in other words, you put your money away for two years, you get more interest and more uh, a greater return than you do when you put it away for 10. That foretells uh, typically a recession. It's called the inverted yield curve because it means investors think that we got this sticky inflation and I'm not willing to put put my money away for a long period of time. I'm only going to invest it for a short period of time. And get my money out when the principal is redeemed, when the bond matures, and then I'll make decisions at that point. You don't want to lock up, which is, by the way, one of the things that has been hurting the banking industry, like Silicon Valley Bank, for example. They went out and loaded up on these long-term bonds, paying one and two percent. Well, you're sitting on them for thirty years. You can keep sitting on them if you got enough cash and reserves to meet the requirements of your demand deposits, essentially people's money in your bank, they come calling for it. But if you don't, you go liquidate those long-term bonds, and they're paying 1% and 2% interest. When an investor can go buy a brand spanking new and paying 5%, you're going to have to discount the hell out of it to unload it. And you got to do it. You're forced to do it because you need cash as a bank. So this is these are all the dynamics going on in the economy that uh, are headwinds, I would argue. The Fed's already said we're going to keep interest rates high for longer than expected. 
That looks like that's going to endure throughout most of 2024. The 10-year yield, of course, spiked a couple of days ago to a fresh 16-year high. Mortgage rates, I think, are at a 20-year high. And you know what this is spawning, Rhino? Something I hadn't seen since I was in the market to buy a house 40-something years ago, my very first property. It's spawning the refinance assumption industry. Hadn't seen that in 40-something years. And so all that means, folks, is that you got a homeowner that has a house, has a property, it has a mortgage, and they took that mortgage out when rates were low, and it's maybe a 2-3% mortgage. So you want to sell the property, you need to, what for whatever reason. Well, it's more difficult when a buyer is maybe interested in your house, but they got to take out a mortgage at 8%, and they can't afford it. So your house is less affordable. It means typically you got to lower the price of your house. Now, it varies from market to market, of course, but in general. Well, you come up with this way for the buyer to assume the seller's mortgage. Just keep it like it is. Just transfer the paper. And I remember distinctly back in the early 80s when mortgage rates hit whatever it was, 16 17%, because we were trying to run inflation out of the economy. And uh, Chairman Volcker at the time did that by dramatically increasing the Fed funds rate. It, honestly, it made home ownership unaffordable. I, I thought we'd never, never own a home. But you had a lot of folks sitting on properties at lower mortgage interest rates, and they're willing to sell them, and there was this assumption industry. And you'd see the ads for these properties, and they'd always say, assumable loan, 6%, 8%, whatever, which was a lot less at the time than the 17%. And so we're starting to see that crop up. we got commercial real estate that's not faring very well in the economy. There, there are pockets of it that are strong, uh, such as the demand for data center footprints because of artificial intelligence, honestly. But there are a lot of banks, a lot of commercial real estate owners that are facing those headwinds. they got to roll that debt. It's at lower interest rates. They, they don't have the cash to just go pay the debt off. they got to roll it, and they're going to have to roll it at higher interest rates. So that ain't good. But more importantly, we're spending ourselves into oblivion. Now, I'm going to go through the math a little bit because I think it's important. And try not to get too crazy in the weeds, wonky, don't want to gloss your eyes over here. But just consider this. Uh, I know everybody wants to eliminate, and I'm with them, frivolous, abusive, wasteful spending. Totally agree. But I think there's a perception out there that if we just did that, we could balance the budget. I wish that were the case, because that's easy. Well, I say it's easy. It's easy if you saw some initiative to accomplish that. Which, by the way, these eight dissenters, have they said anything about that? No. Do they have a plan? No. Have you seen a budget? Has Matt Gates produced a budget? Nancy Mace? Any of those guys? I want campaign to see budget. Right. I want to see a damn budget. Quit just saying we got to stop this. I want to see a budget. I'm serious. It's it's a reasonable request. I was tempted to make the joke about hair supply budget, but. <laughs> That guy. He looks like the ancient aliens, dude. He's just missing the puka shell necklace. 
Oh, gosh. The puka beads. <laughs> I love that. Um, produce a budget. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear the rhetoric anymore. I want to see numbers. I want to see finance. You don't have a plan. Your plan was simply to get attention and fundraise. That was your plan. Now, if he'd have come forth and said, look, we gave Speaker McCarthy a budget that would have balanced the federal finances, but Speaker McCarthy wanted nothing of it, I'd be a lot more sympathetic. But they haven't. And more importantly, everybody went home. If this thing is so dang urgent, which I think it is, your butt ought to be up there 24 hours a day until you come out with bills to fund the government. Because that's what this is all about. But the, I think the piece that is not widely understood, they're only deliberating 30% of total spending. That's the atrocity in this whole deal. You're only, you're only dealing with 30%. Why? Because the other 70% is on autopilot. That's the travesty. What's that? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the plethora of financial assistance program, and the elephant in the room, debt interest. We ain't going to default on our debt. And next year it's going to approach $750 billion. And the next year it'll be a trillion We will spend more on debt interest than we do the military. That's insanity. Okay, so let's say we get rid of all the waste and fraud and abuse of that 30%. Because that's the only thing they're dealing with. Well, how much is that? Suppose it's half. Half. Half of all that spending is waste, fraud, and abuse. Frivolous. Unnecessary. Cut it out. All the foreign aid, all the goofy pork projects, which, boy, have you seen the list of some of that crap? $5 million for an elevator in Nancy Pelosi's district, as an example. Some sort of bird bath, some sort of environmental-friendly bird sanctuary for a million dollars. I think that may be AOCs. They're all freaking hypocrites. All they're doing is scra- And I'm with those who call them out. I am. I know there are folks in my social media that talk about it. I'm with them. I hate all that crap. RFK talked about it at the speech I attended Monday. He's right. The cozy relationship between all those folks with money, Wall Street, corporations, and just big donors, I'm with them. That's despicable. Let's get rid of it. Okay, then what? You need $2 trillion more. That's the point. We're coming right back. Sticks is bumping us out of this segment. We're in the Element Well studio, and we got tickets to give away to the Mississippi State Fair before we get out of here today. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. How well everybody's heard about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. Bird's a winner with a bird, bird, bird. Bird is a winner with a bird, bird, bird. We are back in the Element Well studio. You are tuned in to Middays, and we appreciate it. Well, it looks like no winners in the Powerball last night. The jackpot was $1.2 billion. Now it will move to $1.4 billion. 
That it was the third largest at one point two. So I'm thinking that may have uh, passed up the second. It's headed that way. One point two was last night. The next drawing is Saturday for the Powerball at one point four billion. Sorry to report that's only six forty three million six hundred and forty three million cash if you select the cash option as opposed to the annuity. Where does it put it? It's got to be now in second place, I'm thinking. It's big. Not quite. Okay. What's the second place? The second place jackpot for the Powerball is $1.59 billion. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but which is I, still way behind the number one largest Powerball jackpot to date, which was back in November of 2022, which was a hair over $2 billion. I remember. And uh, ticket sales for the Mississippi Lottery Corporation were brisk, shall we say, during that period. They always are, as folks. You know, I know a lot of people that will say, I only really play when we get the uh, the numbers up like that. I'm in that boat. Yeah, and that's fine. And it seems like this has been happening with more regularity. And by the way, if you're curious about the odds, all that's published. I mean, none of that's secret. Uh, so before you buy a ticket, you want to know, what are my chances? You can find out. It's uh, They're slim, but you can't win unless you play. Is the like one in 292 million or something like that? Something like that. For the whole shebang. Yeah, for the jackpot. Yeah. But it's closer to like one in 40 for a chance to win your money back? Yeah, I think so. I highly recommend you add a dollar, I believe it is, for the Powerball option, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, because that ensures you get the maximum take, <laughs> maximum prize there. On the ceasefire tax line, just can't get anything going with a Powerball. Well, it's still out there. Go buy some tickets and uh, hang on for Saturday's drawing. Paul and Hernando talking about all this, this uh, the federal's financial condition. What's the end game? I, I wish I knew, Paul. All I'm saying is... I think is, he was talking about Ukraine. Oh, pardon me. Okay, at that time. I, I agree. You're right. And that was because I said that the government needs to tell us. Well, what's the objective here? What's the goal? I agree. You're right, Paul. I, I I find that just unfathomable that our government won't say, well, we're sending your money over there. We'll tell you what we're going to get out of that later, I guess. Because every, every as you said, uh, the response, the retort you typically get, well, that Putin's a bad guy. we got to keep him. And, okay, fine, but... What does that mean exactly? I mean, you know, give me something that I can sink my teeth into. These these are the the benefits specifically. These are the outcomes that would be achieved. And there could be something of value. I just haven't seen anybody articulate it in a way that is is I think believable to most Americans who have that concern. But I say again, I and I and I generally oppose the funding because I just don't know what it's for. I don't know what we're getting out of it. But, more importantly, when are we going to get serious about the other $2.1 trillion? When are we going to get serious? Because I'm not seeing any serious proposals from anybody. Now, the package that McCarthy did put on the table, it did in fact cut non 
defense discretionary spending. It's roughly half of total discretionary, which is a third. It's actually less than a third. It's 30% of total. It did cut it by 30%, some $300 billion. Now, this was to the chagrin of the Democrats. And by the way, Chuck Schumer said it's got no chance in the Senate. You remember that? He said that. You guys can cut that $300 billion all you want. It's got no chance in the Senate. And so, to my Republican conservative friends, I just want to remind you, we don't have control. You want to change the dynamic? Let's get control. Let's get the Senate. Let's get a Republican president that is willing to make these tough decisions and shepherd good policy through to, uh, to start addressing this financial catastrophe that we're enduring. I've seen people say, We just need to return to 2019 levels. You've seen that, hadn't you, Rhino? 2019 level. I'm I'm with them. I'm for that. Here's the deal, though. That's essentially what McCarthy proposed. What he proposed was a 2019 discretionary budget of about $1.4 trillion. So in doing so, in 2019... The deficit was about $900 billion, just under a trillion. Why is it two now, even with 2019 discretionary spending? Because of the thing nobody will talk about. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all the other assistance programs, and debt interest. That's why. Because you don't control that without 60 votes in the Senate. And I know so many of my Republican and conservative friends just blast me for this. Where am I wrong? What's wrong with that? What's wrong about that? You think that just because you jump up and down and say, by God, we're going to cut this spending here, that Chuck Schumer and his his uh, caucus and um, his conference in the Senate, that all the Democrats and Joe Biden are going to say, okay, we've seen the error of our ways. You guys are right. No. I can tell you what they're going to say. Sure, let's raise taxes. You want to cut spending? Let's raise taxes. They're doing it now in social media. I've shared it here on the program. Let's raise taxes. Elizabeth Warren just thinks Fed Chair Powell, here's what she said. I'll just read it to you. Due to Fed Chair Powell's extreme rate hikes, families are struggling to afford a mortgage. The Fed needs to stop raising rates, and policymakers must do more to lower housing costs, including by building more housing and cracking down on predatory actors in the housing market. Meaning, if you sell your house for market rates, you're predatory. Somebody comes, knocks on your door, and says, hey, I'll give you 500000 for your house. And you say, no, I want five ten. And they say, okay, sold. You're predatory to Liz Warren. You should sell it for 400 Be altruistic and charitable. That's such horse hockey. Okay, I don't like the Fed's rate hiking campaign either. But I know this. Inflation's up 17% since Joe Biden took office. And by the way, to these eight, Rhino, these eight dissenters, I just want to point out, talking about the ones who ousted McCarthy, and again, I want to be clear, I don't give a damn who the speaker is. 
I'm more worried about solving the problem. I think there's much too much focus on the person and the individual. I want to see actionable solutions proposed. But these eight, guess what they agreed to? Guess what they supported? Every measure Trump put on the table in 2020 for COVID relief. Guess what the deficit was in 2020? $3.1 trillion, the highest on record. How much debt was added that year because of the Fed's open market operations plus the deficit? $6 trillion, the most in our history, when Donald Trump was president. Every one of these eight supported that. They voted for it. Where were they then? Now, because they can raise money off of it, all of a sudden, oh, it's important. We get fiscally responsible. Where the hell were you in 20? And now there's a report. Have you seen this come out? That even though many federal agencies, you know, they sent their people home. Hell, I think they're still at home. A lot of them are working from home. COVID. Can't come into the office. Guess what they spent money on? Office furniture. These guys supported that. So all of a sudden now they, they've like had a reckoning. I'm fiscally conservative. You weren't in 2020. You ran up more debt than any year in our history. Donald Trump presided over $7.8 trillion. Now let me be clear. If he's the nominee, I'm voting for him. He's orders of magnitude better than any Democrat. No doubt about it. I'm just pointing out the math. It's like we forget in a hurry. Oh, no, we didn't think about ousting the speaker then. Of course, it was Pelosi. But this, this vacillation drives me crazy. I think it drives Americans crazy. The average person, I don't think, is remembering that. It's three years ago. I guess they forgot. But the math doesn't lie. Now, Joe Biden's going to leave office. We've talked about it before. He's going to run. He's going to eclipse Trump. He's going to add about $8.4 trillion to the debt. It's unfathomable. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. It's George Dale discussing PERS at 11.05. He's a board member. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. back in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for a retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And now more than ever, if you got a little dough, you need some help with it. 
There ain't no doubt about that. Let's see. Uh, Gary in the Berg on the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. Let's see. Remote at Cruising the Coast, remote at Sanderson Farms, all in the same week. Dang, I want to be Gerard for a week. Plus the colonoscopy over as well. On a roll. I'm pleased to report that I did have one uh, uh, yeah, diminutive, that's the way they describe it, polyp. I think it's less than four millimeters. It's considered diminutive. That's a a technical uh, medical term there. Right now. Uh, and I got my results yesterday. I wasn't expecting anything. It's all good to go. Got to go back in three years. No big deal. Good to go. Very grateful and thankful for... Such technology. Say it again. No one should ever die of colon cancer. Totally preventable. Just go, uh, and uh, no pun intended here, get your butt to the GI, literally, and get screened. It's really that simple. In your opinion, Bo from Starkville asks, would it be better to get the cash or annuity payments should you score the jackpot? And, and uh, Bo, it's really it's a, it's a good question. It's a mathematical exercise, but it requires lots of speculation. So what what's the payment period? Rhino, is it 10 years, um, the, the annuity? Maybe it's even longer than that. I thought it was... Is it 30? Like 50 or something. It was okay. something crazy. Like it was supposed to be the rest of your life. Okay. Well, um, so if you chose that option, Bo, where you took the annuity... Uh, that essentially, it, which is going to be more money, you'd have to compare that to, okay, uh, if I took the cash. It's 30. 30 years. One-time okay. payment followed by 20, 29 annual payments that increase 5% each time. Okay. So if you took the lump sum option, the all-cash option, which is less than the stream of payments uh, summed with the annuity option, you just have to speculate on, okay, if I had that money today, uh, how much could I produce in terms of uh, someone investing? Or you could invest it yourself, just investing it in in uh, various assets. How much could I produce over that 30-year period of time relative to taking more money in the form of an annuity, a stream of payments over that period of time? So it's it's a future value of money exercise is what it is. Good question, though, Bo. And they're, they're smart people that can – uh, if you're fortunate enough to win, uh, there's smart people like the Element Wealth folks that can sit down and help you with that. That's what those guys do for a living is those kinds of uh, calculations and exercises. Yeah, Ray and Gluckstadt, you're right. Uh, Pelosi wanted $5 bucks to fund an elevator in a train station. If that elevator ended up costing a million, then what happens to the other $4 million? Man, I, it's a good question. It's insane. It's these earmarks. I did see, Rhino, that uh, – and this will really cause people to be rather – uh, I rate, I think, of the – talking about this funding measure that they're deliberating now, that uh, the top 63 earmark recipients, Republicans, you have to go down to number 64 of the members of Congress to get to a Democrat in terms of the dollar value of earmarks that they've carved out for themselves. Top of the list this cycle, Susan Collins. From Maine. She got more than, I think, $600 million. Remember, it was Shelby, right, and uh, Richard Shelby from Alabama. I think he was in the $600 million range as well. And all these people got all this crap where they get buildings named after them. I was reading about that yesterday, money going to college campuses, and after a certain period of time, their libraries named after them. It, they're just 
seems so narcissistic, which, I don't know, seems to pervade um, uh, the political realm. I ran a calculator for the annuity. Okay. Yep. If it stays at $1.4 billion, which yeah. it's going to go up, your first payment's going to be $21 million, followed okay. by $22 million, then $23 million, then $24 million, then $25 million. You're going to get an extra million dollars on top of $21 million a year. <laughs> Take the annuity. That is awesome. Yeah, I mean, it'd be hard to believe. No, I want all that money now. I can't make it on $20 million a year. Right? <laughs> now, and that's a good point. I mean, the, the situation may be different. If the jackpot were smaller. Oh, yeah. Right. But at that point, who the heck cares? You know what would be brutal? Is writing that check to the government. Starve the government. Take the annuity. Because <laughs> all they're going to do is pee it away, as they say. We're stepping aside for a break. Hour one in the books. That means it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. But when we return, it's George Dale, board member of the Mississippi Public Employees Retirement System, a.k.a. PERS. Please stay with us. It ain't too bad the way you and me, cause I sure am you, then you can do the thing you do. And now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays is with you now. We are in the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. It's been a busy week with the traveling and so forth, uh, but I'm looking forward to being at the Sanderson Farms Championship tomorrow. Don't forget, Rhino's going to give away some tickets to the Mississippi State Fair because it's in town. And, of course, cruising the coast. It is a uh, busy time here in the state of Mississippi. We welcome to the program Mr. George Dale, board member for the Mississippi Public Employees Retirement System. George, thanks for coming on, sir. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Let me quickly say, uh, George, uh, thanks for being here, but I don't really want to be here. Uh, I am not a representative of the PERS board. I am a member of the PERS board. That has uh, some uh, strong opinions on some things. And uh, last week I uh, attended the legislative budget hearing when the executive director of PERS, Ray Higgins, who does a good job, was uh, making a presentation supposedly about our budget. Well, as it would be, they never talked any about the budget. They proceeded to... Some of them telling him how we were unconcerned or not capable or whatever the word I should use. And and I wanted I had to bite my tongue. Uh, and being a member of the gallery, you can't speak. Uh, so I decided maybe I go at it a different way. Uh, I, I just... It, we are concerned. When I say we, I'm talking about the nine members of the board of the future of PERS. 
uh, I'm kind of caught in a bind. Uh, I'm elected by the retirees who basically don't want to change anything. And, and I can appreciate that because I enjoy the income that I get uh, after my 50 years in state service. I've got a good retirement, and I've got a wonderful 13th check. But I've got two children that teach school, mm-hmm. and I would like for them to have a, a, a good retirement. And one of the reasons they continue to teach school is they know that the, the state of Mississippi has a good retirement. Right. Uh, so I'm kind of caught in a bind, uh, wondering what's going to happen 20 years from now as opposed to what's going to happen next week. So I'm here uh to express my opinion. Okay. Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing that with us, uh, George. I really do. And you may have heard me discuss this this situation, this subject, uh, rather extensively here on the program. And and I do it not to be not to be critical. I, I do it just to inform and to point out this is something that's got to be addressed. It's not going to correct itself on its own. Uh, I know you're well aware of that. I'm quite sure the board knows that, and so does Mr. Higgins, and their folks down at the legislature. Now, you know as well as I do, this is not a popular subject among those running for office. Uh, normally, because almost almost whatever you say somehow gets gets taken out of context. If you just say, hey, look, we got to do something, immediately the response is, oh, my gosh, they want to cut my benefits. No, they want to cut my 13th check. And you hear that I regularly. I hear that more than anything. Every, every, I, I, I drink coffee with a lot of people in Clinton. You know, when you're retired, your bladder expands because <laughs> you have to drink more coffee. you, you got to have, to have something to, to do. And that's, that's what I hear from all those state retirees or former school teachers or city employees or whatever don't touch my 13 check yeah and and it's it's understandable because um at first nobody ever wants to go backwards you, taking something away from somebody is just always politically unpopular to say the least um and, and many have built a lifestyle around this income and and well they should the the unfortunate reality is that i don't think it's sustainable uh, on the current path that we're on, and there are third parties who've told us that, that have said you're in red signal light status in the three uh, categories of measurements, the three principal ways we measure, define uh, benefit systems. You're uh, you're kind of looking negative in all three of those. What I, what, I, what I resent is being, being categorized uh, as as we're the problem, and yeah. we being the board, we're we're the messenger, uh, and the message that we're if telling people is the same thing you've just said. We're fine today. Uh, our retirement system is a good retirement system. There's over thirty billion dollars in reserves. It's hard to get excited when you've got uh, thirty billion dollars in the bank. But again, you look at what we're paying out as opposed to what we're taking in. You look at people living longer. And and what I, I don't li- didn't like is Section 25-11-133 says the Mississippi legislature shall fund the retirement system. Yeah. Our job as a board is to select a director, which we did, made a good selection, Ray Higgins, and to be sure that our system uh, is solvent and handle investments, and et cetera. And we do that with, I think, a pretty good job, conservative investments, and have done well. 
uh, has to be funded, how to go forward uh, with benefits and whatever. In my opinion, uh, you've got uh, you can do two th- one of two things or a combination of both to correct the situation, put more money in it, or cut benefits. I've said the same thing a million times, George. Rhino can shake his head of that. I've said it a million times. You got three options: more coming in, less going out. Combination of the two. You That's could, You could do both. And what's what's irritable to me is after I was elected, I'm into my uh, beginning my second term uh, as a, elected uh, by the retirees as a member of that board. It's a I think it's a five year term. Uh, I'll be eighty. Eight, eighty-nine years old at the end of this term. If I don't go to the retirement system somewhere else, but <laughs> but I really can make whatever decision I want to. But, sure. Uh, and 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 we have a very good board. Uh, some of them been on it a while. They're very capable, and and I trust the decision and recommendations they make. But but we can't get an audience. Uh, we we continue to ask. The, the the makers and the shakers, let's meet and let's talk uh, of how we can come up with a solution to address these problems. But to, to hear this yapping from, from some that don't know what they're talking about sometimes, it's the board's fault. The boards are going to make the cities and the counties pay money that they don't have. We're aware of that. Uh, but but let's, let's talk and come up with an alternative, and we can't get an audience. Well, when you say you can't get an audience, you're talking about from the legislature? Georgia? All right, here, here's what I've done. When I was first elected, uh, I wrote a letter to the speaker and to the lieutenant governor. Okay. Uh, let me encourage you to uh, take a look at, at PERS. Okay. Uh, and and we never we never followed on it, up on it. Uh, I was uh, asked to vote against uh, the uh, uh, request that more money be put in by the legislature into PERS, and three of us vote against it. Well, uh, by a vote of 63, the vote was to send a recommendation over to the legislature uh, and and uh, to put more money in it. Now, when you say put more, I say put more money in it, it's not only by the legislature. The state of Mississippi can do that, but it trickles down to the cities and the counties, the summer rolls and the apprentices, school and, districts, and the school districts. Their budget is tight. Right to to meet that obligation, some of them would have to lay off policemen and firemen and and not hire assistant teachers and whatever. We're aware of that, or raise taxes, or raise taxes. We're aware of that, but to be accused that we don't care. I think is is not correct. We okay. do care, so let's let's visit with the decision makers to come up to a, a way to ease that pain as best we can. It's kind of like the situation on a national level, and you know this better than me. We know that Social Security and Medicare on a national level is will be in trouble if nothing is done. Right, but nobody will touch it. Right, you're absolutely right because it's politically unpopular, it's politically toxic, and they just keep kicking the can down the road. You, you could argue that's sort of what's happening with with PERS here because we got to take some action. Now you have taken uh, at least action on the employer contribution rate. You the board right voted to raise that, and and that's been a bit controversial, George. It was five percentage points scheduled to go into effect 
a couple of days ago, October 1, and then they delayed that till next July, and now it's being phased in over three years. we got a break right here we'll talk about on the other side. we got George Dale, a board member at Mississippi Public Employees Retirement Systems in the Element Well Studio. Stay with us. Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. So Mr. Dale and I were just talking about uh, the recent action on the part of the PERS board to increase the employer contribution rate by five percentage points. That would take it from the present 17.4, I believe, to 22.4. That's correct. The employees uh, is, is at 9%. Uh, is it right? Is that right? I think it's seven. Uh, it, either seven or nine. I'm not sure, but theirs would not be touched. I, it didn't. It didn't include theirs. Just the uh, employer. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, George, I think it, it doesn't matter though. But the bottom line is, we're not touching that at this point. That, that's correct. But but the thing about it, and this is what uh, really stings, is that uh, that additional uh, five percent. Uh, it, it, the problem is not for the Mississippi legislature and the state employees. Uh, the legislature can do the right thing. Yeah, on just that. send them more money. But but it's the counties, the cities, and the school systems will also have to be that same percentage, and it will really sting if it goes there. And that that's where I'm really concerned for. Yeah, because the uh, those political subdivisions don't get their money from the state. They they have to raise it locally through property taxes. They get a sales tax diversion that we send to the state, and then they turn around and divert 18% change back to the municipalities. Counties don't get anything. School districts get, you know, their their MAEP funding, but it, for it, for the most part, they've got to fund um, their operations with um, ad valorem taxes. Yeah, that's correct. And and. It, it it just says shall, and that yeah. means it has to be done. Whenever I was in the school system at Moss Point, uh, somebody told me one time when the budget for the school system goes to the city, uh, it it also said shall, and they could complain and bellyache about it, but they had to do it. Yeah, and so that's the same situation we have here. It it, it absolutely is. So that's um, 
it just continues to be a problem that we that we got to address. So this, uh, you know, some of the local leaders, as you pointed out, they've expressed their concerns about the um, uh, this five percent that they've got to now absorb, and and some are concerned about having to raise taxes. But do you think? The legislature should perhaps respond with maybe diverting more of the sales tax. Well, there there's some things that can be done, uh, and and we uh, our board meets I think um, about two two three weeks from now, and we have been in discussions about some some poss- some possible things or suggestions that that can be considered, and we would just like an opportunity to present those. Uh, and and I can understand the president of the Mississippi Municipal Association has has uh, been fielding those questions from his members and complaints, and I can understand that. But I called uh, that person, and I have not received a call back. Uh, one of the people at the hearing was a mayor of one of the North Mississippi towns, and I saw her from a distance at the Southern Miss Tulane football game. And by the time I got through the crowd to try to lasso her well she had gone on to bigger and better things so i have been unsuccessful in getting somebody's ear in the policymakers let's talk about this yeah no i agree rather than play the the, the name game uh, or the blame game uh, we're we're not the enemy we're, we're just the messenger yeah well, um, when you look at what's driving uh, the, the financial challenges of PERS, uh, one of the things, as you well know, you pointed out, we're, we're living longer. Um, and these are this is a defined uh, benefit plan, which means benefits stay uh, for life. Uh, one receives benefits for life, which is a, a good and attractive part about working in the public sector as you, you get this defined did, benefit did plan. Did you know last year, I, I saw this, and I hope it's interesting, that last year they were – 97 people that were 100 years or older that were in PERS. Could you imagine what that person was drawing whenever they first started teaching school in uh, Sebastopol or somewhere, and now they're they're drawing a PERS check, and they're 100 or over? I absolutely did see that. And and I can tell you that when you look at that um, folks at that age, in that retirement uh, age range, their cost of living payment, um, which is known as the 13th check, I guess commonly, is about 10x when I looked at it, what their service benefit is. Yeah. Um, and about half of uh, recipients, I think, when I looked at it, have a have a cost of living benefit that exceeds their service benefit. You know what people don't realize? It, I think it was in the 90s. Back when uh, things were going good uh, financially, and uh, uh, the legislature passed uh, in, enlarging the benefits, right. and that was good. But the only problem is they didn't attach to additional funding uh, to that, uh, and that's that's good. And and that's the reason at the budget hearing uh, last week, I, I noticed uh, it, it was just obvious that Older legislators who were aware of that and were there when it happened, they didn't have much to say. Hmm. It was some of the younger ones that really were more vocal, and I understand. And it, it, um, but there's some value of us old folks that, that can still remember <laughs> stuff uh, or still around. But, you know, you, you we get asked the question, you're talking about state employees. Yeah. Who, who cares about state employees, school teachers and, and whatever? They draw a check. Why should I, as a private citizen, be concerned about 
uh, their retirement. Yeah. Where I work at uh, at Acme uh, Two Plant, uh, we got a little retirement. It's not very good. Why should I be worrying about the, the the solvency or insolvency or whatever with the state employees and teachers and so forth? Uh, the retirement system, what effect it has on our economy is like a major uh, industry. Uh, did you realize, or, or some people don't realize, that in Hines County, there are over 10,000 people that receive a check from PERS. Last year, $318 million from, from for retirement uh, went out to these individuals, and that's money plowed into the economy. Wow. Rankin County, two hundred and five million. Madison County, one hundred and sixty-four million, or six hundred and eighty-seven million dollars in these three counties of money that that's invested in the economy from our uh, the, from our state uh, our, our employ- employees. So one of the things that uh, actions you guys recently took was to lower the target. Uh, return on investment rate. Right? That's right, from seven point five percent to seven percent, um, and and that's uh, I know the actuaries recommended that, but that's just just a a, a guess. Uh, who knows the political climate we're in, whether or not investments will be better, worse, or whatever. But uh, uh, most all actuaries say that, that that need to be done, and so that's uh, what we did. You feel like uh, George that back in the '90s when we uh, we increased the benefit structure that that was probably based on an expectation that you'd be able to generate more returns on investments on the portfolio. That, we also had uh, a higher ratio of active employees paying in. That's correct. That's correct. Today uh, we have 117,000 people in Mississippi that receive a check from the state uh, retirement system. There's 145,000 people paying in, that number gets closer and closer every year, where it, we're going to, in, in the future, uh, the rate that it's going, the number of people that are retiring each year, uh, we're going to have probably more people taking than more putting in. Yeah, it, uh, it's really incredible. So I, I'm looking, uh, I had that wrong, I just want to clarify this, those who, who retired in 1987 and prior their total annual benefits, excluding their cost of living adjustment, the 13th check, is $10 million, is what the benefit is. The cost of living check is $21 million. I remember where I got the 10X figure. So it's about... It's about double. The 10X figure, George, is when I did an, uh, an exercise where um, I took the base service benefit from that time period, and then I just uh, adjusted it for inflation over that period of time. And that figure comes out to be about one-tenth, as I recall, than what we actually pay as a cost-of-living adjustment, meaning the adjustment actually exceeds inflation. The uh, PERS every month pays out a little less than than two hundred million dollars per month goes out the door uh, in payments to people like me. And then you on in December, when the thirteenth check is added to that, uh, you're talking about close to a billion dollars goes out the door in the month of December. And one of the recommendations that we would like to be considered is uh, give the uh, employees an opportunity to take that 13th check monthly, yeah. whereas uh, that big bunch of money wouldn't go out in, at, at one time. It's, it's, uh, it, it puts financial pressure, cash pressure, on PERS to have to come up with that money. I mean, they can 
plan for it, reserve it, but it's still kind of an uneven match of expenses and revenues, and that is a problem. If you can hang, hang around, I want to see your thoughts about uh, the future and how we ought to address this. we got George Dale, a member of the PERS board in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We got Mr. George Dale, board member of the Public Employees Retirement System in the state of Mississippi. So, uh, Mississippi's plans solvency is uh, just behind the most insolvent, last I checked, at the rankings of all the 50 states. I think Illinois, Kentucky are way up on the list, and Mississippi's not far behind. And just in terms of these metrics that actuaries use, uh, to to evaluate the overall financial soundness uh, of the program. The concern I have, George, is that we've got um, we got rising inflation, and of course, the beneficiaries, you know, they need cost of living adjustments to keep up with that. We have a system that really doesn't consider the CPI, and so in those years where we had little or no inflation, they were still getting a cost of living adjustment. Well, that's true, but now I don't want people to be led to believe that that we're going broke tomorrow. We're not. That's right. Uh, But decisions that we make uh, in these is for down the road. As I said a minute ago, my two kids that teach school, down the road, they enter the system. Um, So those of you that are listening... Don't run out and have a semi-heart attack that the retirement system going broke. That's not what I said. Totally true. But I will quick to say, though, that public uh, pensions nationwide are beginning to be strained uh, and need some attention. Uh, The state of Illinois, you mentioned, uh, they had some serious problems with their retirement system, and the legislature said, we ain't going to fund it. We're not going to do it. Well, they did that for two or three years, and then they started playing catch-up. Well, they were so far behind in in the the solvency of it, it affected their bond rating. So now they're paying more in their bonds that they issue than they ever would have paid if they had kept their retirement system solvent and vibrant. And so that's kind of what you have to be guard against. 
Yeah, and and so uh, you want to keep those bond rates, those interest rates down, especially in an, in an, a rising interest rate environment. It's it's already starting to cost more money to borrow money, and the, and the state is no exception to that. We hope we don't borrow money. The last couple of years, we've we've had uh, good uh, performance uh, from a revenue and expense perspective. Our legislature's been responsible there, so we haven't borrowed any money, had not added any debt. That's true. But, but we, we still have add on a but, debt on the books. But we do have a, a pretty large bonded indebtedness in the state of Mississippi. We do. Yeah. And um, and and that's uh, we, we just haven't in the in the last couple of years we haven't had to increment that, but but certainly could affect us. And you never know when you got to go to the well and borrow money. When you do that, uh, when those interest based on your rating, which does incorporate um, the solvency of PERS. Uh, because it is a, a state obligation, because you, you just read it. Statute says the legislature will fund PERS. It's my understanding also, George, that if the board makes any adjustments to the employee contribution rate, which I did review, it is 9%. It changed back in 11, 2011 or 2010. But nonetheless, if the legislature does, uh, pardon me, the board, the board does increase the employee rate, then the legislature has to increase benefits. That's what I was told by PERS, that if the board says, look, we're going to raise the employee rate, and I'm not saying you guys are even thinking about that. I've seen no utterance of such. But if you were to take the 9% to 10%, for example, it's my understanding in discussions with PERS, uh, PERS management, that the legislature would have to increase benefits commensurate with that increase in the employee rate. I cannot answer that. I, I do. I do know. First, first time I've heard that, uh, and it may and probably true, but I, I can't answer that well, that's fine. I, because I don't know. But there's been no discussion, has there, among the board members uh, that you can share with us to increase the employee contribution rate? We've talked about it, but uh, but we have tried purposely to stay away from that as best we can. Okay. Uh, in fact, that that would be uh, probably we would get the more screams and and from from those individuals and and we would from a collective body like the Mississippi legislature who is bombarded from all sides or everybody wanting more money and we know that and we just join in the course of those asking for more money okay so the the benefits themselves is my understanding uh, George are actually embedded in state statute uh, that's that's correct uh, as I said earlier uh, my understanding is my responsibility as a board is to pick a director which we did and right. to be sure that the plan is solvent which we're working on being sure that's done okay well and the other challenge is as you well know is that there are those who call for uh, our government to shrink the size of government, and that typically means reducing headcount. When you reduce headcount, you're actually putting more pressure on PERS, at least in the short term. Maybe in the long term, it may be better in that, well, we got less benefits to fund in the future. But PERS as a defined benefit plan is more of a pay-as-you-go system, meaning money that's coming in now for people working funds benefits for the people who are getting benefits out now. So it's it's just like Social Security in that regard. You know, I, I've smiled when some of my friends who uh, just went through this election and was bragging to the voters, and they should, we have cut the size of government. <laughs> and, and that politically sounds so good, and it is good. It's, uh, government is too big yeah. uh, on state and national level. 
that does. That puts a bigger strain when you when when less people are paying in. Uh, you you cut that amount, then it it does uh, kind of crimp the style. Uh, a word about. Uh, where all this came from uh i I went back it's interesting i used to teach history a long time ago and i i love the historical aspect of things and of course when you get old like me you you know more things in the past than you do in the future of course (laughs) Uh, but the 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 retirement system actually started in 1944 simply for the teachers okay uh in 1950 the highway department employees lobbied the legislature for two years saying we want a retirement system well a state uh, legislator named mitchell robinson from hines county introduced a bill to uh, create a retirement system for the highway department so in 1952 that legislation passed creating one well then they immediately began to add the state employees and then shortly after that they added the counties and city employees. Well, the teachers already had theirs, and so those teachers that were in the system in 1944, uh, they they had to let them kind of run off the books uh, b- before they became a completely 100 percent part of the state retirement system. Every state's retirement system uh, basically are different. Ours is different in a number of ways, but the main re- way is that we include so many entities we got teachers city and county governments state employees which is a big lot of of folk uh now the highway patrol has a separate system but we manage it for them the mississippi legislature has a separate system but we also manage that so actually a pers board is overseeing three retirement systems uh, and and the, the the two the legislature and the uh, uh, highway patrol are probably more viable financially because of they're not as large yeah. as the the other one would be. Uh, we you, you asked a minute ago off the air. Uh, what do we do? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Many states are wrestling with this question of what what to do about the state their retirements, and some of them the problems are bigger than others. I, ours is being enlarged because of the factor of the size and who all it includes. All these entities that I, that I mentioned, uh, Louisiana is a is a good example. Louisiana, like Mississippi, has just gone through a year. A couple of years where the legislature had a big surplus, as Mississippi did, with all the federal COVID money and the other money that came in, uh, we had a big surplus. Well, in Mississippi, what our leadership did, and I understand this, they gave us tax cuts, and that that's good. In an election year, that was a great thing to do. But in Louisiana, they are on on their ballot in November is for 25% of the surplus amount of money that they encounter will go to the state retirement system Mm -hmm. to reduce that unfunded liability. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, if our system uh, went broke, we would pay 63 cents of a dollar to to the the membership. 60% funded. uh, We're 60% funded. That means we're 40% is unfunded liability. We would like that 60% to move to about 80%. Um, will this additional in, infusion of money move us closer to that 80%? Uh, 
I hope it would. It'd um, take a few years, I think. It, it hadn't done the math on it. Yes, but. It, it would take take a while. Nineteen, uh, uh, I think, two thousand forty-four, provided everything stays like it is now. But we can't predict the political system right. and all those those things that we have no control over. Economic on. factors, etc. Yeah. George, appreciate you coming on. Glad Thank to be you. here. Yes, and, uh, it's always good to be to be here. One of the things that I miss in the political world is not being asked to do things this so so Gerard you, you, you I know you just ran out of guests but <laughs> but you don't know how much I appreciate and appreciate I'm coming in to be somebody again we'll do it again we're coming right come on come on middays with Gerard Gibbert all right we are back on super talk mississippi back everyone is Perth. We are back in the Element Well Studios. Little Panama from Van Halen bumping us into this segment. That'll get the old blood pumping, won't it? That's a great song to uh, to drive to. One of those. Got to be careful because you start shifting the wheel around stuff like that. I appreciate Mr. Dale for coming in the Element Well studio and discussing PERS. He is a member of the PERS board. Yes, he is the former commissioner of insurance in the state of Mississippi. There was a question about, you know, here's a person that's receiving benefits who's on the board. Well, of course, that that's uh, that's some of what you want on the board. And by the way, the uh, state law uh, specifies, stipulates, who serves on the board of PERS, not not by name, but by uh, position. I can't remember exactly all of those details uh, that serve on the board of trustees, but you are elected, um, as Mr. Dale was, elected by retirees. Then you have someone who's appointed by the governor. Uh, that's Chris Graham who served at uh, the Department of Revenue, Chris Howard, was elected by the state employees, past board chairs. Mr. Randy McCoy, elected by retirees. The state treasurer, David McRae, he always has a treasurer. He or she has a seat on the board. Brian Rutledge, elected by the institutions of higher learning. So these are people elected by retirees. This is in accordance with. With state law, they represent their various groups. Kimberly Hanna, elected by the municipal employees. Kelly Breland, elected by state employees, the board vice chair. That's the structure of the board of uh, PERS, and again, that is in accordance with state law. Um, let's see. Uh, what did you say here, Thomas? The Walmart in Hernando is closed? He sent us a report on that. I haven't seen that. Is that today? I think so. Hmm. And so appreciate all the all the commentary. I'm going to try to get through it here on this, I think, very, very important uh, matter, that being uh, PERS. Uh, let's see if I can find one. 
we were told that we dropped from being 92% fully funded down to 48% in one year. It's not true, says Chris in Forest County. That's that's not true. If you look uh, historically on the funding percentage uh, of the program, that it's uh, been some time that it sat at the 92. It didn't drop in one year. Uh, by 50%. Uh, the whole thing would crash, honestly, if that were the case. And and so that's that's simply not true. I'm not sure who is uh, making those statements. But uh, just looking at a chart here on funded status history, if you go back uh, even to, just in terms of dollar value, the uh, well, let's look at the actuarial funded ratio in 1980 it was actually 48 percent that did rise the highest i see through history is 80 percent that occurred in 1988 no pardon me 98 85 percent and then you know it's uh been on sort of a steady decline from that period just looking through the history going back 40 years to 1980, it was at 79 in 03. Uh, let's see, 64% in 10, 60% in 15, 61% in 22. So no single-year dip of anything that drastic. Uh, David in Oak Grove says, GG paying PERS benefits based on the four highest years of work is fiscal insanity. The benefits should be paid over the average working life of the employee. Going to an average would be a good start in getting PERS back to a sound footing. Well, that's David in Oak Grove. Appreciate that. So I, I know lots of folks have ideas about that. We had somebody here, if I can... Um, Find it, um, somebody said, we should just eliminate the 13th check. Who said that, Rhino? I know I saw that up here somewhere. Maybe it was maybe it was Thomas. Yeah, why not just cut the 13th check? So we got a break right now, and those are both good questions. Uh, why don't we change the way benefits are calculated, and why don't we just totally eliminate the 13th check, which is what Thomas clearly supports. On the other side of the break, uh, I'll discuss, I'll provide some thoughts on that, some some um, just opinion, honestly, on uh, those recommendations. But right now, it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming right back after the break, dig more into that. And then Joel and Natasha from uh, America's Roundtable radio program coming up at 1220. Now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We are in the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Looking forward to a little weekend. 
We got one more day to wrap this week up, and I hope you're having a good one, folks. A little rain looks like it might be moving through the Magnolia State. Much needed rain. Maybe it'll um, increase the height of that river a little bit, right? It's desperately uh, needed uh, for sure. So uh, back to this PERS situation. So, okay, it's easy to say this just wipe out the 13th check. No more cost of living raises. Well, uh, I, I couldn't support that. This is the same thing we have with Social Security. Uh, it's a defined benefit plan. And the reason many of, or certainly one of the factors, that many people work in the public sector for schools, for state agencies, counties, cities, is because of the defined benefit plan. That That is a draw. To a lot of people. Now, they pay into that over and above Social Security, and often more than they would typically contribute to a traditional private sector 401k plan. But that's one of the benefits. Now, typically, they give up a higher wage in the private sector. So this is all about market dynamics. If you could hire public sector employees at the same rate of pay we hire them today, and totally eliminate their retirement benefit and convert it to a defined benefit, uh, pardon me, contribution plan, such as what we have in the private sector. And the difference, of course, as we've explained many times, is in defined contribution plans, you contribute, your employer may or may not help out with matching contributions. But when you get ready to retire, whatever's in that account, that's all you got. Those benefits are not available and do not continue for life. Those benefits continue as long as there's money in that account. You can draw it all out at once. You can spread it out. You you handle it however you want once you reach the qualified age to begin drawing benefits out without paying any sort of penalty. If you early withdraw, you got to pay a penalty, and that's because you contribute tax-free. That's the way it works. And then once you get hit a certain age, I think it may be 72, you're forced to start drawing out. Why? Because you pay taxes on that. It's tax-free when you pay in. It's taxable when you draw out. Typical 401k plan. On the other hand, in a defined benefit plan, which is what PERS is, again, that's the attraction. Come work in the, in the public sector. You won't make as much salary and wage as you do in general in the private sector. But you get this this uh, special, unique benefit the private sector, for the most part, doesn't offer. That's a defined benefit plan. That's the deal. So we could certainly eliminate that, but then we'd just be plugging the hole somewhere else with having to fund higher salaries. Which, by the way, higher salaries means more Social Security, more Medicare, more uh, unemployment insurance, more workers' comp. Because that's, those are dollars typically based on the salary. Some of them do have thresholds on it, and so it may not apply to everybody. But in general, you can expect that in the employee burden, the expenses associated with the employee uh, over and above just their base pay, their wages. So, And, of course, it's not surprising that um, we got lots of people 
say saying that they are totally opposed to that, Thomas. You you don't have a lot of fans here in the in respect to eliminating the thirteenth check, DJ and Summit. Yeah, eliminate thirteenth check and spend that money defending the lawsuits. That would be true. Don't stop the thirteenth check, but stop the increase of the check until the fund is sound. Well, you could certainly do that. I've seen some proposals for that. The way it works now is um uh, and I'm trying to recall this from memory, your years of retirement leading up to the age of 60. You retired before the age of 60. I believe I got this right. But the years of retirement uh, leading up to that age, the the cost of living adjustment is just a flat 3% per year of your service benefit. After the age of 60, it's 3% compounded. And that's what that's what generates uh, the, that's what's used I should say to calculate there, there are two aspects of it the uh, the thirteenth check the cost of living adjustment so sure you could stop the increase of that as as uh, proposed here by the listener on the ceasefire text line but then the retirees would say well heck inflation went up six percent this year but my benefits stayed the same that's the squawk you'd get there. No one not in the purse system should even comment. Oh, my God, leave the 13th check alone. That's from the same person on the ceasefire tax line. Donnie from Pike County, I just have one question. What if you do away with a lump sum payment? Oh, talking about the lottery. If you have 10 people take a three-year lump sum of uh, 100000 that equals a million dollars. I'm not sure. I think he's talking about purse. Oh, he's talking about purse? Okay. So here's what I can tell you. So somebody else said um, 61% funded of all benefits paid at once. Not true. Not true. Not true. Not true. I'm saying it five times because I probably debunked this, oh, I don't know, eight, ten thousand 10,000 times in the last month. It's not how it works. It's all based on actuarial analysis of future benefits and future income. And basically what it says is, based on a gazillion different inputs that very smart mathematicians use to calculate the future soundness. That's what this calculation is, this 61% um, actuarial funding. It's based on the future. It's not based on a point in time. That's a popular misconception. Not true. But um, the, the point is that all these calculations are all based on on future expectation. How many people are we going to have to pay? How long are they going to live? How much money are we going to generate from contributions of people working in government? How many people are going to be employed by government? What are their salaries going to be? How much are they going to pay in? How much is the, the state uh, or the public sector employer going to pay in to match that? How much money are we going to make on the portfolio? All of that's figured, and a lot more inputs as well, but that's the general schedule of inputs to figure that out. So just like Mr. Dale said that I've said a thousand times, uh, more coming in, less going out, combination of the two. And he's absolutely right. It's not a risk. We're not in danger of not being able to make obligations today or next year or even the next couple of years. That's not a problem. But we want to address this now. 
because it's going to be way more expensive if we kick this can down the road. That's where we are with Social Security and Medicare right now, because politicians, so they can get reelected over and over again, say, I'm not touching your Social Security and Medicare. Somebody else will have to deal with it. When it crashes, I won't be around. Look at me. I protected it. Right. Except you torpedoed it for everybody else. But they're, they're uh, scheduled to get benefits long after you're dead and gone. You don't care. So we got to address this now. And that's the point. Uh, let's see. There's, um, there's something else that somebody suggested that I'm looking for. Uh, let's see. How about breaking up the payments of 13 check? either spread it out or biannually. That is a suggestion that's come up, George, is to to require the retirees to receive the cost of living adjustment in each monthly check as opposed to having this big cash requirement on an annual. It is optional now, but a lot of people do enjoy that big lump sum payment that they get in the so-called 13th check. That is one option, no doubt about it. Uh, gosh, I'm looking. I'm sorry. Somebody else... Um, had something else I wanted to wanted to get to. Uh, I can't find it now. I apologize for that. I know people who whose thirteen checks more than their other checks can buy. Sure, that's Kevin and Monticello. Yeah, I just went over that, Kevin. So, uh, you if you look at the schedule of of uh, retirees receiving benefits by year of retirement, if you follow me there. And then you look at how much of their money comes from their basic service benefit, how much comes from their uh, their cost of living adjustment. Once you start running through the years there, going back to all those who retired in 1987 and prior, you go up uh, from there about 12 years, I think it is, you'll find that all of those Folks receiving benefits through those years of retirement have a cost of living benefit that exceeds their service benefit. Well, that's just because when they retired, their benefit was very, very low. Oh, I know what it was. Somebody said something about we shouldn't calculate the benefit based on their high four years of salary. Well, again, that's just part of a defined benefit program. I, I'm not arguing um, the the logic of that, but rather... That's just how the market works. We are stepping aside and coming right back with Joel and Natasha from America's Roundtable Radio. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're in the Element Wealth Studio today. We thank you for joining us. We welcome to the program now Joel, uh, Joel and Natasha from America's Roundtable Radio, founder, co-founder of International Leaders Summit. Hey, Natasha, Joel, good to see you guys. Great to see you, Gilbert. Thank you so much indeed, Gerard. Great to be with you all. You bet. Gerard. You bet. 
So uh, a lot of controversy up there in Washington this week with the removal of Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. And I guess the question is, where do we go from here, Joel? Well, it's certainly been a very difficult uh, season here up on Capitol Hill. Uh, There appears to be a state of dysfunction in governance. Uh, The good news is that uh, the Republicans are gathering together and uh, working out uh, the next steps. And it appears that a number of, a few actually good uh, leaders are stepping forward, including Jim Jordan from the state of Ohio. Yeah. And this past week, uh, so-called Republicans, uh, eight of them, together with 208 Democrats, ousted a uh, a remarkable leader. I would say that's you know Kevin McCarthy certainly did a great job in bringing together a very disparate uh, group of Republicans and uh, charted a very important path. And he certainly received a, a great deal of. Uh, uh, praise and commendation, even from former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. Yeah, my, you know, my larger concern, uh, honestly, Joel, is that I don't really care who the Speaker is. It shouldn't matter that much. I think is the point because this body uh, passes legislation. Now I understand they have a, a fair amount of power on just the flow of measures uh, through the chamber and, of course, appointments. But in general, when you look at our most pressing issues, I'm more interested in somebody putting forth a plan to address those issues. I don't care who it comes from, whether it's the speaker or a member or what, and I just don't see that coming out of the eight Republicans who uh, who voted to oust the speaker, and the Democrats have a plan that, in general, I don't agree with. Exactly, Gerard. It's uh, it, You're so right about it. It seems that members of uh, Congress, specifically these eight Republicans, uh, certainly put their personal ambitions in front of good governance and doing the work that Americans have been uh, focused on. I mean, there's serious problems. We have a border crisis that is a major issue. We have a national debt that is out of control. Uh, We've got other concerns about American taxpayer aid going to Ukraine without important oversight. So, yes, the American people are frustrated and they need, you know, principal leadership and well, members of Congress sent to Congress to get the work done. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, uh, Natasha, one of the things that has really uh, been batted around quite a bit in Washington is this uh, enormous amount of money that we're shipping over to Ukraine. And one of the things that I've said here on the program that I think Americans might be more amenable to this idea if they had a better understanding from their their government. How do we benefit from this? Where's this money going? Nobody can seem to give us a full accounting of it. And then what's in it for us here? Right. Exactly. Uh, What you mentioned, basically, we need more accountability and transparency. We need to account for every dollar spent in Ukraine. Uh, Obviously, we we came to aid uh, Ukraine against Russia's invasion. So the money should be spent for military aid exclusively and only. Uh, And as we move on and see what's going to transpire next, we can think about any aid based on corruption, anti-corruption measures that are put in place in the country. So the problem that we see in entire Eastern Europe, as well as in Ukraine, is that uh, there is um, corruption that hasn't been dealt with. And when we send our 
hard-earned U.S. taxpayers' money. Uh, these countries receive our money for infrastructure. Uh, they receive uh, money laundered by tycoons that coming from Russia, that are coming from Nigeria, via Liechtenstein, Austria, other countries. So basically, they do not need private investments yeah. that are based on profits yeah. because they, they live off uh, the bribes that they receive from uh, um, laundered money or they actually live off our infrastructure. We build it and we can't invest after that. So our trade and investments are going down. Uh, Royal states are coming in and we are exacerbating corruption in those countries. So therefore, uh, as you said, we need to account for every dollar spent in uh, Ukraine at this moment. It has to go for military aid only. And as we transition to to new, uh, hopefully soon, to a peaceful uh, time, we have to see how we can, you know, help, not help, but how we can invest our, you know, through you, private investments, through through other sources on a, in a market economy that is based on the rule of law and protection of property rights. Yeah. Not I, as a government, I, but I, as private Totally agree. And, you know, I I think most Americans uh, share these concerns about other countries that we send American tax dollars to, that uh, we we certainly uh, get upset in our country about corruption within our political uh, world, and, and certainly it exists, but Honestly, it's nothing compared to what goes on abroad, uh, in, in my view. In, in many of those countries, we're sending money to, and I just feel like that a lot of times it ends up in the hands it wasn't intended to be in. Exactly. That's so true, Gerard. In fact, we have serious crisis within the United States. We've got issues of infrastructure. Uh, there was a great uh, concern about the cost of health care in, in our country. Uh, the border is not secure. And uh, we're concerned about the NATO borders. We're yeah. t- concerned about Eastern Europe. And a great number of these countries don't even respect the rule of law yeah. in these countries. The politicians don't. So we're sending out taxpayer aid to bolster security in countries don't even that don't even respect the rule of law, just like Croatia. Congressman Doug Lamborn sent a letter to Croatia's prime minister and uh, also Secretary Blinken calling for accountability. So here's a country, Croatia, a NATO member and the only EU member state that is now on the FATF, FATF's money laundering and terrorism financing list. And it'd be alarming to everyone. Each member of Congress, whether in the state of Mississippi or Michigan or everywhere across the country, should be asking questions. What's going on with a EU and NATO member being on the money laundering and terrorism financing list? And it's becoming a hub for money laundering. Uh, So, yes, we need to be more, um, you know, careful of without taxpayer aid and money going through the World Bank and the EBRD, the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, which America is a major supporter of, uh, it's time for greater accountability. And these politicians on the other side in Eastern Europe need to come up with answers. I totally it's agree. interesting to mention, uh, 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 Gerard, that uh, recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, so instead of answering the questions by that were posed by U.S. Congressman Lambert, uh, President of Croatia is visiting Biloxi Saw in that. Mississippi, and 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 the, we have actually to involve uh, Senator Wicker, uh, who is representing Mississippi mm-hmm. in the Senate, in Helsinki Commission hearing because if we want to address the issues that are going to be coming up in Ukraine, that's the next basically what we're working on now. 
it's coming up in Ukraine. The same questions. Why are you taking U.S. taxpayers' money while blocking uh, American private investments? Because it's never in their interest to to receive investments that are not paying any bribes. Totally. And Americans, American companies don't pay bribes. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's almost a way of business, as you guys know, in some of those countries. It's In fact, it's the only way you can get business done in some of those countries. Uh, Joel, I uh, wanted to talk to you about uh, our border situation. We have a, a shocking, honestly, announcement out of the Biden administration where a Homeland uh, Security Secretary Mayorkas says, hey, I think we need a, a border wall at the southern border, at least in certain sections of the border. What's up with that? It's amazing. When you think about what the Biden, what, well, when, uh, at that time, candidate Biden said in August 2020, and he basically made an announcement to the world by saying, listen, if you need and seek political asylum, come to America, and we're going to open the borders we're going to get you all in. And in- interestingly enough, after nearly three years of seeing this surge of illegal individuals, and, you know, Natasha and I have talked about it, you know, the term that we call individuals entering illegally is illegal immigrants. But in all sincerity, they are breaking the law by coming in. They're not immigrants. They're illegal individuals trespassing and moving into our country. And for the first time, in three years, uh, Secretary Mayorkas admits that uh, there is a problem. Unbelievable. And uh, even as they work on this issue here, uh, this is just a Band-Aid approach to the greater problem. The message should be sent to all of these countries that are sending their people to the United States. Listen, if you're going to send your folks over here, we're going to charge you for sending them back to your country. <laughs> Now, because this is not about political asylum, this is about individuals coming here because these countries haven't dealt with the problems from within. Totally agree. Joel, Natasha, always a pleasure visiting with you guys. Thanks so much for your insight and all of your work on these important issues. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you, Thank so you much, Gerard. Gerard. We're coming right back with more folks in the Element Well Studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio. So we got lots of uh, comments on the ceasefire text line about this uh, this PERS situation. And honestly, I'm glad to see it because we need to have a, uh, a meaningful discussion and debate about this. And, and, and based on just running into some members of the legislature here in the last few weeks, Rhino, uh, some of them not surprised. You know, they hear us talking about it. And uh, you know that many of them tune in, not not um, perhaps every single day for the entire show, but they they tune in enough. We talk about it enough for them to catch it, you know, the discussion about it, and they know they they know it's it's uh, the the elephant in the room that uh, they they've got to address. My personal opinion is that we need a multifaceted 
approach. Uh, you, there's not just like health care. It's not like, boom, just do this, that fixes it, done. This, that's absolutely not the case in my view. And I think we need a multifaceted approach that achieves what I'm suggesting, which is you got to have more coming in, less going out, combination of two. Now, that doesn't mean today. It means over the long term. Over the long term. On the ceasefire text line, let's take a little deeper look at this. Let's open up a can of worms. Why don't we fix the welfare system? Let's put the people that are capable of working to work instead of them sitting at home drawing government check. The jobs are out there. That would help Social Security possibly purge by adding to the workforce. Nah, it really wouldn't help purge that uh, at all, honestly, because that's a self-contained system. Helps Social Security a little bit, but not nearly to the extent. If every single one of those were, were out there working, it, it wouldn't make a dent. And so security. I'm not arguing with the point there, um, but the, the problem with the work is as much just a mismatch. The skills or lack thereof among the available workforce, and Mississippi has a very low labor participation rate, which I think is a more meaningful uh, measurement of employment than the unemployment rate, because it doesn't, the unemployment rate doesn't count people not looking for work. And that's always been a flaw. In, in that. So, uh, but but I'm with you. Purge is a little bit different uh, situation. And somebody sent me something that I, I wanted to get to and, and clarify that I think is important. Oh, gosh, I hope I did. Here we go. Said um, that Mr. Higgins, who who is the executive director of Purge, said that the 61% funding ratio. It is, in fact, a measurement of, okay, we just paid all benefits at once. Well, and this person says, I lost respect, you know, more than the folks running PERS. I don't want people to think that at all. I'm just trying to stimulate the conversation. And I will tell you that he's not totally wrong in that, and so I apologize for for getting a little, little snippety on that um, because you could describe it that way. But it is an actuarial calculation. It's not like, because if you think about it, if we said, if we just paid all benefits at once, paid all benefits at once to who? And for how long? You see the problem? Because it's benefits for life. That's why I'm saying, how long are they going to live? You say and pay everybody benefits. What if everybody died tomorrow? Then we're, we don't have a problem. But that's not going to happen, and we don't want it to happen. And that's all I'm trying to say, is that it's a complex uh, calculation to determine that, and in fact, uh, I'll read to you what most actuaries generally consider to be the definition of the funding ratio. The funding ratio is the value of assets divided by the actuarial accrued liability. That makes sense? See what I mean? I mean, I know you do, Rhino. I'm not preaching at you, but it, actuarial science is a complex science. These are really smart math people. You know that. You agree with that. Insurance companies hiring by the droves. It's it's a it's they get a, paid to quantify what would usually be considered unquantifiable. That's totally true. It's risk assessment. That's what they do for a living. They're trying to project risk, and Lord knows how do you know an airplane runs into a building like it did in nine eleven? Totally changed everything from a risk perspective. Nobody thought that was going to happen. Uh, the new funding policy analyzes the funded ratio over the projection period with an ultimate goal of being fully funded. So that, that's all I'm saying is that it's, it's, 
and I, I'm not trying to be uh, confrontational whatsoever or refute what Mr. Higgins said, because he's a smart guy that knows what he's doing. He understands this, and he's not trying to mislead. I promise that. Um, he, he gets it, and he knows this is a problem. But this funded ratio, this is all that really matters. It is a valid measurement of the financial health of a defined benefit plan. And ours is not where it needs to be. That's all that really matters. However we describe what that means technically is kind of irrelevant. What matters is that this science has been around long enough. I'm talking about actuarial science, and we have enough history and experience to know that it's a problem. That's that's the bottom line. Uh, one of the other metrics is cash flow as a percentage uh, of assets, and the other is what's called the actuarially determined, determined contribution, ADC. And all that is, folks, is the actuary saying, you need to be taking this much money in from people working um, to make this thing solvent and sustainable, and this is how much you're actually taking. So they look at this ratio of what you should be taking in versus what you are taking in. And when that gets out of whack a little bit, or even a lot, is it case could be, then the actuaries say, you guys got to have more money coming in. And on the cash flow as a percentage of assets, they're saying, you guys got to produce more cash flow on your portfolio. So that's that's PERS. That's defined benefit plans. Um, I've heard you discount any small correction, says Jeff and Carrollton, dropping the bucket many times. Well, a full bucket starts with the first drop, and even though it is a drop in the bucket, doesn't make misspending right. Nobody said that, Jeff. I'm just saying that you're not serious about it until you at least acknowledge, which nobody will do, that you've got to address mandatory spending. Imagine if you're trying to fix your household, Jeff. You've got a, you're upside down in your household. You've got more expense and you've got money coming in. But you're only going to focus on 30% of your outflow. That's what's happening here. That's what I'm, I'm arguing about. That's my point. Well, see, I need to cut expenses, and my expenses are 50% more than my revenue, but I'm only going to focus on the 30%. And by the way, within that 30%, I'm only going to focus on 1%. You're still broke, big time. You're not serious until you say, no, nah, we got to take bold action. I'm shocked at conservatives that don't, don't seem to support this. We conservatives typically were bold. We think bold. We think big. We should be if we're not. Not symbolically. Because you know what they do? You know this. Look at me. I got this symbolic change made. Send me some money, please. That's exactly what happens. That's what Matt Gates is doing today, right now. My inbox has already got him. I've talked to other people, too. I want to see a plan. Otherwise, you're not serious. And if, you, and if you're not producing a plan, then you don't think it's a big deal. Oh, that's fine. We can just do $2 trillion for a few more years, and eventually we'll get to the big stuff. Let's just focus on the little things right now. When are we ever going to talk about the big things? I've been hearing the little things for decades. You're shaking your head. You know that. Oh, yeah. It's always a little bit here, a little bit there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. What the hell are we waiting on? But you're not serious until you say we got to get to the big stuff. Because the big stuff is what's creating the big deficits and the big debt. I, I don't know a better analogy than the one I've used. You've shown up at the hospital, you're having a heart attack, and the doctor looks at the toenail. 
that you came in with. But he's having a heart attack. a little ungrown right there. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And you're grasping for breath. That's what's happening. The patient is big time sick. And we're only dealing with the minor ailments, not the critical, crucial, potentially death-producing sicknesses. Uh, let's see here. Um, I did see that Thomas is showing us a photo here of Matt Gates, and that's, uh, what's her name, Elon Omar. She was smiling. She was eating this thing up when Gates, you, <laughs> Thomas sent a picture. I saw that, Thomas, as well. Unbelievable. PERS reform will hurt private schools. All their teachers are retired public school teachers who are getting PERS and will work for peanuts. I mean, the bottom line is, Thomas, that this is a deal made with the state of Mississippi and public sector employers to public sector employees. It's a deal made. you got to honor the deal. It's just simple as that. Now, how do we do that? I, like I said, I think we need a multi-approach, a multifaceted approach. We probably do need a new tier for new employees to come into the system. That just means their benefit structure and calculations change. Maybe for those new tier, we need to change the retirement calculation from the high four to the high eight, as an example. And here's what here's what is unique about defined uh, benefit programs in terms of calculating the benefit. It's not based on how much you paid in. It's based on how much you made your last four years and the number of years you worked. It has nothing to do with how much you paid in. We're coming right back with a final segment and some tickets to give away. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Back in the Element Well Studio. This is one of those days I feel like I need about three more hours. There's just so much going on, so much to talk about. Uh, Rhino's going to give away some tickets in just a second. I wanted to uh, just make sure you know we're going to be at Sanderson Farms Championship tomorrow. Middays uh, we'll be there. You can uh, get tickets at SandersonFarmsChampionship.com. On In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with longtime New York sportscaster and author Ann Ligori. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. All right, Rhino, we'll give away some tickets. Oh, yeah, the Mississippi State Fair is here. The 164th Annual State Fair started today. And it's got all the rides, the fair food, the games, the rodeos, the concerts, American Idols, having auditions, all kind of crazy stuff. And Super Talk Mississippi is giving you a chance to win a four-pack of tickets plus a parking pass. All you got to do is be the 17th person to text into the C Spire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. Be the 17th person to text in Super Talk. And you'll win a four-pack of tickets and a parking pass to the Mississippi State Fair. There you go. So a question on the CSPAC text line, a really good uh, dialogue about uh, uh, PERS. 
Uh, Joe in Oxford, will the extra 5%, that's the 5% we're layering on to the existing 17.4% employers pay into PERS for their employees, will that fix the problem? It unfortunately will not. The actuaries say that without other changes, we will need to increase another 5% in a few years. And you may recall uh, Mayor of Oxford, Robin Tannehill, discussing that. You remember that, Rhino, when she was on the program? I know you're counting. But remember, she said, what are we going to do? we got to do another 5% in a few years. So that's unfortunate. Uh, but, again, that's why I say a multi-pronged approach is needed uh, to get this thing done. How many years does a person on the state PERS system have to work to receive benefits? Uh, I, it's changed through the years. I want to say it's 25, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it's eight years to vest and 25 uh, to be eligible uh, for for full benefits, as I recall. So, and then uh, it's based on your high four years of salary and then the number of years of service, not the amount you paid in. Now, of course, that's considered to be kind of extrapolated in that, but it doesn't always work out one for one uh, in that regard. Uh Let's see. So uh, we had someone that said, how many people are drawn now that their job is removed and contracted out um, and nobody's taking their place, such as MDOT? Yeah, I can tell you that, and I get it, but see, keep this in mind, folks, with with the subcontractors. When you hire someone permanently, um, it's and you have a situation where there's a, a, a need to reduce the force, perhaps for financial reasons. It's very difficult when they're permanent employees. It just is. When they're subcontractors, it's easy. Hey, we don't need you anymore. It's done deal. Plus, you got all the benefits you have to pay on top of that when they're permanent employees, now and in the future. Now, what I can share with you is that this is one of the issues with Social Security and PERS, which is this pay-as-you-go systems. You're relying on people working for the government and members of the system. In the case of PERS, they work for uh, state agencies, school district, municipality, county, all the public uh, sector entities that participate in PERS. Well, the ratio, uh, this is something that actuaries track constantly because it's it's um, a, a very strong indicator of um, of trends and, and just future solvency and ability just to meet obligations. And that's the ratio of active members to retired members. In 2012, it was 1.81 workers for every one retiree. It's 1.81 people paying in to fund the benefits, some of the benefits, uh, because the rest of the funding comes from the return on the investment portfolio to one. But in 2022, that decreased to 1.24 to 1. So from 1.81 to 1.24, steady decline. Well, that just means we got more people retired, drawing benefits, than we do work. So here's the thing. Every time somebody says, hey, we're going to shrink the the public sector workforce because we're going to shrink government, that's great. And we should, just like Mr. Dale said, because government's too big. He said that as well. I agree. Unfortunately, the way PERS is structured, that just means that's another that's another loss of a member paying into the system to fund benefits going out. That's just what's complicated about defined benefit plans. Uh, let's see here. Take the largest uh, monthly payment and let an insurance company pay the death benefit in the form of a death benefit or annuity. Well, then you'd have to buy premiums 
this person asked about survivor benefits. What I'm trying to say is, see, guys, the way these actuaries figure out these benefits, all that's figured out. I mean, all that's included. It's not more paid out if you have a survivor. It's actually a designated beneficiary is what it's called. It's not more than if you didn't. Your benefits as, a, as a, the main member who's retired are much less to account for the fact that when you die, your benefits are going to continue to your designated beneficiary. We're out of here today. We're coming back uh, at the Sanderson Farms tomorrow. Till then, stay safe, and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.